Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and reading today from the words of Henry Morris, who in 1951 wrote this little book called The Bible and Modern Science. We've finished the science part of it. We're into the history part, which is a type of science also, talking about how the Bible is verified uh, in many different ways through the archaeologists that have come through the years. This is an older book. Some of these things are dated, but they're still true. Now, the very common critical view uh, regarding the cruelty and injustice, they say, of Jehovah's instruction to the Israelites to exterminate the Canaanite inhabitants of the Promised Land must now be viewed in the light of archaeological discoveries relating to Canaanitish civilization and religion. These discoveries have demonstrated that Canaan had degenerated into an area of unbridled wickedness and cruelty, including the extensive practice of child sacrifice and accompanied by the grossest immoralities regularly practiced in the guise of religion. Reminds us of abortion today, doesn't it? Their influence on God's people was bound to be degenerating unless they were completely removed. And in fact, history demonstrated it to be so when Israel failed to carry out God's command of extermination. Many discoveries have also thrown light on the periods of the judges and the kings of Israel, all strongly supporting the historical accuracy of the Old Testament accounts. King Solomon's great stables have been unearthed, for example, as well as a great copper-smelting furnace belonging to Solomon at his seaport of Ezion-Geber. During the later period of the divided kingdom, the Assyrian Empire was in its ascendancy and power, and many discoveries in Assyrian archaeology also illumine and confirm the biblical histories. The failure of Sennacherib to take Jerusalem from King Hezekiah, in spite of the seeming invincibility of his mighty army, is implied in one of the Assyrians' cylinders, unearthed at the site of his ancient capital, Nineveh. Hezekiah's pool and conduit, constructed during this time, probably in anticipation of the coming Assyrian siege, have been found still intact beneath Jerusalem. These are only a few of the great number of discoveries which have been made in the past century, confirmatory of the accuracy and authenticity of the Old Testament histories. For a more detailed study of this subject, the reader should read one of the many recent conservative books on biblical archaeology, such as those by Free and Unger and Pfeiffer and Alice and others, A-L-L-I-S. Problems still exist, of course, in the complete harmonization of archaeological material with the Bible, but none so serious as not to bear real promise of imminent solution through further investigation. It's significant that Dr. Nelson Glick, probably the outstanding living Palestinian archaeologist in 1951, has said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. End of quote. We need to consider briefly the subject of the authenticity of the Old Testament writings. 
It has long been one of the chief tenets of modernism that most of the canonical books of the Old Testament were written long after the events they purport to describe, and usually by other than the traditional authors, and that, as a consequence, they contain many anachronisms and errors. There is no proof of an objective nature of this claim, and yet this claim is almost always made in a very dogmatic way as one of the proved results of modern scholarship. In particular, the Pentateuch and the Book of Daniel have been maligned in this manner. By a critical examination of the words and phrases in the first five books of the Bible, critics have come to the conclusion that these books were written by several different writers, probably at a period just before or just after the Babylonian exile, instead of by Moses. This claim is made in spite of the fact that many of the New Testament writers, even Jesus himself, refer to these writings as being of Mosaic authorship. These men were much closer to the time of writing of the disputed books and were much better acquainted with their history than the modern critics. To deny the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is to deny the deity of Christ. For if he was, as he claimed to be, the Son of God, surely he would not have spoken so frequently of Moses' writings as such if Moses were not the author. However, an unbiased examination of the books themselves surely must convince a reasonable person that they must have been written about the time of Moses. They abound with evidences of Egyptian influence. Even in the very early parts of Genesis, which are commonly supposed by the critics to have been derived from the Babylonian and Sumerian legends, there are many words, roots, and phrases that are very clearly borrowed from the Egyptian language. Actually, it is probable that Moses was more properly the editor rather than the author of some of the book of Genesis. The phrase, these are the generations of, which occurs 11 times in Genesis, seems to mark off the original eyewitness narratives written by Adam or Noah and the other early patriarchs. These quite possibly were first written on stone tablets by the men whose names are thus recorded on the signature inscriptions and handed down through the patriarchal line, preserving the true history of the race from its very beginnings. They were finally acquired by Moses, who made the necessary editorial transitions and additions, and who then picked up the record himself in the writing of Exodus and the other books of the Pentateuch. Moses and the earlier patriarchs were certainly fully capable of writing, contrary to the claims of critics who ignore the testimony of modern archaeology on this subject. This explanation of Genesis accounts for the well-known style differences as well as all other linguistic and historical phenomena in Genesis. As far as the other books of the Pentateuch are concerned, the critical theory is utterly unable to explain why such a large portion of the writings would have been taken up with details of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. For example, why did the supposed post-exilic after the exile, writers take so much time and space to describe the minutest details of the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the forms of worship to be used in connection with it. Most of the critics claim that the tabernacle never actually existed. Finally, it's impossible to imagine the slightest reason why these writers would have gone to such great pains to deceive the people and clothe their writings with a spurious antiquity 
claiming them to be the works of Moses. How is it possible that no one, down through all the centuries, seemed to have the slightest suspicion that these writings were not genuine works of Moses, until the modern higher critics went to work on them? It is truly amazing that the channel through which has come the highest code of morals in the world and the purest and sublimest conception of God should have been contaminated with intentional fraud at its source. If they were not really what they were represented to be, it seems quite impossible that the books could have been received as genuine at any time after that of Moses. They contain detailed instructions as to laws and civil and ecclesiastical ordinances, which are presented as having been in force from the time of Moses, and of the institution and continued observance of the Passover, which, according to the records, had been observed from the time of Moses. As such a book, or laws, or priesthood, or ordinance could never have been accepted at a later date, if they were not actually existing at that time, and were believed by the people to have been continually in force from the time of Moses. Naturally, in a work of this nature, we cannot dwell upon the details of the evidence for and against this critical theory of the authorship of the Pentateuch, and for that matter, other sections of the Old Testament as well. However, for the student who is interested in the subject, a wealth of literature is available. Every claim and dogmatism of the critics has been adequately answered and refuted by Christian scholars. Let us briefly, though, consider the book of Daniel. Probably not even the books of Moses have been subjected to as much criticism and as many charges of spurious antiquity as has this book. However, this was to be expected because of the amazing prophecies in the book, most of which have already been fulfilled with meticulous accuracy. Consequently, it is claimed that the book of Daniel was written after the events that had been predicted had already occurred, a position forced on the critics for the simple reason that if the genuineness of Daniel were admitted, the fulfillment of its prophecies would constitute an incontrovertible proof of its supernatural inspiration and by inference would establish the fact that all of the Bible had been given by inspiration of God. Some of these prophecies and their fulfillments will be discussed in the next chapter, but here we are concerned with the matter of the historical authenticity of Daniel. The book purports to have been written over a rather long period of years, but all during the exile in Babylon. It's written partially in Aramaic, partially in Hebrew, with portions which especially concerned the captive Jews being in the latter language, Aramaic, and those addressed especially to the Babylonians and their king Nebuchadnezzar in the former. I'm sorry, the, the latter language being the Hebrew and the former language being the Aramaic. However, the book contains three Greek words, and this fact was used as the basis of the assertion of the higher critics that the book could, could not have been written until after the conquest of Babylon by Alexander the Great, a Greek. Archaeology, however, has proved beyond any doubt that there was extensive commerce between Greece and Babylon even before the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's known that at least one of the questioned words, all three of which were the names of Greek musical instruments, was the name of an instrument which had been in more or less common use in Babylon for many years before the time of Daniel. Uh, 
Not only did this, quote, proof backfire, but the existence in Daniel of eight Sumerian words, that's in beginning of the of the Bible history, would, would seem definitely to establish the time of writing as not later than Nebuchadnezzar's reign. For this language was never used after that and was almost a dead language at that time. Even the Hebrew language was no longer used after the captivity. And so the fact that much of the book is written in Hebrew would imply that it was written before or during the captivity. There's more about Daniel and some other things in this chapter, but we'll have to wait till next time on that, as I believe I've gone long enough for today. Thank you so much for being here. Do look around the site. We have so many things that could bless you at uh, this website, and I trust that you'll be looking around. And uh, contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com if you're interested in joining one of our Zoom meetings. We have a couple times a week. That would be good. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on August the 16th, 2022. And Lord willing, you and I will talk again real soon. Bye-bye.